Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Hey, I want to start this morning by, by showing you a picture. I want to show you a picture. <laughs> That's Hazel. That's Hazel. And uh, this, this picture was taken on one of Hazel's better days. She's about 13 months old. She has Down syndrome. She has, at this point in her life, when this picture was taken, has spent about three of her 13 months in the intensive care unit. She has, by this time in her life, had one open heart surgery. And as you can imagine, life is just not real easy for Hazel or for her parents. And her grandfather was quoted as saying, she is a treasure and a gift to our family. You can see, Hazel's pretty special. You know, you walk up to a couple and you've been told that they they are expecting, they've let that news get out and you're having a conversation with them. And the natural question to ask somebody who's expecting a baby is, do you want a boy or do you want a girl? And, uh, you know, whenever that question gets asked, here's what you don't hear. Oh, we don't care whether it's a boy or a girl as long as that child is developmentally delayed. As long as that child has Down syndrome, as long as that child is going to be in the hospital three of its first 13 months, we really don't care whether it's a boy or a girl, just as long as it has some special needs and some special medical problems, that's all we care about. No one says that. So I'm just wondering this morning, do you ever see something happen in someone else's life or maybe it happens in your life and you find yourself asking the question, why? Why did that happen? What's going on there? Why does it have to be this way? I have spent a a, a fair amount of time this week on the phone with a few friends that are going through some things, and they basically, they didn't just say it just quite like that, but the question is there, why? What's going on? Why Why does this have to happen? Why is God doing this? Why doesn't God do something? You ever look at a situation and ask yourself, come on, God, why them? I mean, they're good people. They're nice. They they serve you. They don't deserve this. Why why them and why now? Couldn't you have waited, you know, six months? Or couldn't you have been better if this happened six months ago? This is a question that Jesus' disciples asked, and, and they're in the city of Jerusalem, and they're walking along, and they come across a man that is blind. He was born with this condition, and Jesus' disciples take the opportunity to ask Jesus a very simple question. Hey, Jesus, what's up with this guy? Why is he like this? They ask the question of Jesus, and it is a question that Jesus will respond to. This is is an artist's rendition of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, What you need to know, uh, you can kind of see the temple back there, but but this is just an artist's idea of what he thinks it might look like. But that's that's pretty neat, because you get to see you know, kind of the, the tight corridors and a lot of people in the city, a lot of movement in that city. Um, the, the temple made Jerusalem kind of the epicenter religiously of the country, but Jerusalem was a big city and it had a lot of stuff going on. There was more to Jerusalem than just the temple. And Jesus is walking along and he's walking through Jerusalem and they they he and his disciples come across this man who has been born blind, and they say, why? Why him and and why this? Now, they didn't quite ask it that way. Their question had a little bit more of a theological bent to it than that. If you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. 
And beginning in verse 1, we read this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, in our culture, we ask the question this way. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's the question we ask. They didn't ask that in the first century because in the first century, they just assumed if something bad happened to you, you had it coming. It's just the way it is. You probably did something. You probably sinned. You, you probably have this calamity coming on you. You've done some crime against God, and now it's time for you to pay for that thing, whatever it is that you've done against God. And, and so this is your punishment. But the problem here is that this fellow has been born with this condition. If you haven't done anything yet, then that raises a whole new question. Who sinned, this man or his parents? What went wrong? That's really what they want to know. What is God punishing? Who is God punishing? And Jesus says neither. The condition that this guy has been born with isn't because of something that he did and it's not because of something that his parents did. Spoiler alert, Jesus is going to heal this guy, all right? He's going he's gonna to make this better. You know he is. You know that Jesus isn't going to encounter this guy and just walk away from him and not leave him in his blind condition. You know better than that. And so what you're thinking is, oh, I get it. So Jesus is going to encounter this blind guy. He's going to heal him. And then lots of people are going to come to faith. Is that it? A lot of people believe in Jesus after Jesus heals this blind guy. No, that's not what happens. Jesus sees this blind guy. He's going to heal the blind guy. And what's going to happen next is there's going to be a huge controversy that surrounds this whole situation. There are only two verses, we're going to look at 41 verses today, there are only two verses dedicated to the healing of the blind man. The rest of what we read is basically going to center around a group of people who do not necessarily believe in Jesus, and, and they, they are going to struggle with any kind of coming to faith or coming to believe. Um, what they're going to have is an angry, diehard, vehement, disbelief in Jesus. There are all kinds of varieties of disbelief, all right? So, I mean, you can encounter all kinds of people who don't believe. Some people, you can encounter them, and this is what they say. I don't care what you show me. I don't care what you say to me. I don't care what evidence you, you present to me. I am not going to believe. I'm just not going to believe. There are some people, that's the way they approach it. There are some other people, and they say, I'm not a believer yet, but I'm, I'm open. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether or not I can really believe that a man was crucified on a cross <clears throat> and was raised from the dead. I don't know if I can believe that or not. I, I'm, I'm working through some of that, to which I can, I can respect that. I can easily, you know, I have great respect for somebody who isn't sure, and they've got some questions, and they just want to know, and so they're, they're kicking the tires on it, is the way we refer to it. They're just, they're, they haven't capitulated yet, but they might. They just got to work through some stuff. And I think one of the things that happens with Christians is we pressure those people too much sometimes. We don't, we don't just give them a little space to ask some questions and to experience some things. We, 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 we try to move them sometimes a little too fast. But that's not the kind of disbelief that we're encountering today. Another type of unbelief is the kind that says, you know, I don't know what I believe anymore. I'm not sure I buy it anymore. I've been kicked up, kicked around so much and and my faith has taken such a hit, I just don't know anymore. This, that's a different kind of disbelief than the kind we're going to encounter and the kind we're going to look at today. 
Today, we're going to see angry, hateful, I don't care what you say, I don't care what the evidence is, I'm not believing disbelief. And our conversation today is really important. So back to the question, hey, Master, who sent this man or his parents? There's a bunch that we're not told about this guy. We don't know his name. We, we don't know his age. We do know that he would have come, uh, there would have come a day that his mom and dad would have been told or they would have realized we're expecting a child. And she would have carried that child as each mother does with great expectation and a lot of wonder and a lot of questions and, and you know, I wonder if it's going to be a boy or a girl and, you know, I'm sure they had all that. And, and then one day, the day comes for them to deliver this baby and the, the woman is having this baby and whoever's there to help her, a midwife or whatever, and the baby uh, shows up and this person looks up at the mother and says, congratulations, you have a, a baby boy. Sir, you have a son. And now he's thinking to himself, great, I get to pass on everything that I know. I can hand down the family business. I can teach him my trade. It's going to be so much fun to show him how I do things. When, when my wife gets older, he will be able, if I pass before my wife, which probably will happen, then, then he'll be there to be able to look after my wife in her old age. And then comes a day that this couple comes to the realization that their son cannot see. And then it starts to really set in on them what that means for his life and for their life. And they, because people just, you didn't just suddenly see one day. If you were blind, you were blind. And that meant for life. And in the first century, if you were blind, you were basically down to one option. You begged on a corner, or you begged at the city gate, or you sat on a curb and you held out your hand while people passed by. And the dad comes to realize he's never going to be able to grow up and take care of me or my wife. We're going to be taking care of him his entire life. We've got to make sure that even after we're gone, somehow he's got to be taken care of. And the question would have come up in their mind, why us? What did we do? Why now? Why him? And the disciples are asking, who sinned? This man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. He says more than that, and, that's what, he, and what he says next is critical. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that, and if you have a pen in your hand, you may want to circle this next phrase, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's that first part there. Neither he nor his parents sinned. Jesus is saying, look, this guy never sinned, and, and this isn't because his parents have done something wrong. He says, this condition isn't because they've messed up. That's not why this is going on. What Jesus is declaring here is that this traumatic situation in life is not the result of a personal wrong, and it's not always linked to something bad that has happened. Sometimes it is. You need to know that. Sometimes when something bad happens to us, it is linked to something that we did wrong. The Bible says that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. A good dad disciplines his children. I've told this story before, but when my son Bennett was little, 
about six. We were in the backyard. He was told to do something. I didn't hear him respond, so I looked up. And I looked up just in time to see Bennett going. (laughs) And I got mad. And I wasn't mad that he was going. That didn't make me mad. I mean, haven't we all done that? We've all done that, right? Mom or dad tells us to do something, and we smart off in a way that nobody can see us. I saw a, a video this week on Twitter of a little boy that flipped his mom off when he didn't think she was watching. And the look on his face when he realized she sees me in the rearview mirror, it was priceless. She said, I can't say what she said, but it, it was, had to do with beating his rear end when he got home. And he had it coming. But I didn't get mad because Bennett did what he did. I got mad because as a father, I've got to do something about that. I can't let that go. I can't let that kind of disrespect go. I mean, I know that we've all done stuff like that, but as his father, I have a responsibility to step in and make sure that he understands you don't do that. A good father disciplines his children. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Four chapters before the chapter we're in now, in chapter 5, Jesus heals a man that can't walk. And he looks at the guy and he says, listen, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Okay, so in that case, you kind of put two and two together and you say, I think maybe that guy wasn't able to walk because something, you know, it sounds like if he doesn't straighten up, it could get worse. So there are times when God can, dis- can discipline us, and to be totally honest, most of those times have to do with when we do something, God just basically lets the full weight of the consequences of that behavior visit us. That's really what the discipline is, a lot of the times, if you want me to be honest. We do something boneheaded, and a lot of times God steps in and says, I'm not going to let you feel the entire full effect of how stupid you've been. But sometimes God just, sometimes God just steps out of the way, <laughs> And he lets the consequences roll. And boy, we, we, we learn in a hurry, right? Don't want to do that again. That, that, that was not good. I, that, that didn't help. So who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let's camp on the phrase, the works of God, for a few minutes. Here's a question to consider this morning. What if God is not only at work in spite of the challenges and pain and trauma of our lives, what if God is at work in and through and around the challenge or the tragedy that we are experiencing today in our life? What if God declares to put his works on display in our life, around what's going on with us, through us, as we maneuver through the different things in life? What if God desires to put his works on display There are often seasons in our life where we feel the absence of God, but what if the pain that we feel, God is in the middle of? What if God's in the middle of the layoff? What if God's at work? What if God's doing something in the middle of the second miscarriage? What if God's up to something? I have no idea the challenges that you are facing in the room this morning. I I know some of them because I know some of you and you've shared those with me, but I, I know in a room this size, there are things going on in here this morning that I know nothing about, things that scare you, things that maybe have you asking a question kind of like this one, you know, God, why? 
I, I can just tell you that just in, in, in leading up to today, just this week, and when I've had a quiet minute, um, you know, driving, sitting at a red light or just in my office or sitting at home in the quiet, more than once I've just kind of offered prayers of, you know, God, I don't know. I don't know what everybody's going through, but I know there's stuff. And just in advance of what I'm going to say on Sunday, I pray that you would be with these people, that you would strengthen them, that you would help them on Sunday to see that you want to work in and through and around what's going on in their world, that, that you desire to be present with them in it. And I pray, Lord, that their hearts wouldn't be hardened. I pray that they wouldn't take it out on you. God, I know you're, bigger, you're, you're big and you can handle it, but God, I just help them to see the truth and help them to be humble enough to embrace whatever it is long enough to see what it is that you're up to in their life. And now Jesus is going to heal this guy, and what he does is, is fairly strange. He kneels down, works up a big old mouthful of spit. You know how much spit you got to work up to make mud out of dust? A lot. Don't worry, I'm not going to spit. But he works that up in his mouth and he leans over the dust. He drops that into the dust and he begins to work it with his fingers. Just use your imagination for just a minute and see the fingers of Jesus working up the mud. You got to see it. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you got to see it. He's working up that mud. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He scoops it up, gets to his feet, comes up to this guy and puts this paste that he's made out of his spit and the dust, this mud, and he wipes it on this guy's eyes. You say, no way, Brett. He didn't, he didn't do that. No, he did. You got to read your Bible, dude. I mean, there's great stuff in there. Verse 6, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word means sent. Now, this is just my guess, and I'm just guessing. But I'm just guessing that no, not, this guy would not have just let anybody put mud on his eyes. Right? I think, I think that this guy knows that this is Jesus. No doubt, as this man has has been on the street, and as he's been begging, you know, they say that when you lose one sense, all the other ones are accentuated. So I would expect that his attention and his hearing has been accentuated, and as he sits on the street every day begging for money, he hears people walking by, and he's heard the name Jesus on the air, on the lips of people. Some people walk by, and they're not at all happy with Jesus. They can't stand him. They hate his guts, and they're talking about how they don't like this guy named Jesus. Other people are walking by. They're talking about this one they think might be the Messiah, the one that might be the chosen one. At least he's special. Have you heard him speak? Have you seen him? There's a crowd around him. A lot of people want to get close to him, and this guy's hearing all that. And I think he knows this is Jesus, and he knows, you know, oh, Jesus is doing the old mud on the eyes trick. 
He does as he's told. He's on his way to the pool. And I wonder what's going through this guy's mind. I expect what's going through his mind is, I'm going to this pool. I don't have any idea whether this is going to work or not. And probably as he's walking to the pool, he's thinking something along the lines of, you know, never in recorded history have we ever heard about somebody who was born blind and at some point begins to see. Translation, there's no good reason for me to believe that what is about to happen is that I'm about to get my sight back. There's no reason for me to believe that. It probably had to cross this guy's mind. This has never happened before. But he went, verse 7, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. Let's read that again. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Is it just me or does that seem a little anticlimactic to you? This guy's seeing colors, textures, he sees faces, he sees movement he's never seen before. Can you imagine the world he's seeing now and what it's doing for him? And he's able to walk wherever he wants to walk. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. He's got a five-point sermon. Guy named Jesus shows up. He puts a little stuff on my eyes. Uh, he told me to go wash. I went and washed, and I can see. Five-point sermon. Where is this man? I don't know. Wait, 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 wait. You said he made mud? Yeah, he, he spit on the ground. I know it sounds gross, but he spit on the ground. Whipped up some mud, put it on my eyes, sent me to the pool, and I washed my eyes, and now I can see. So he, he made mud. Yeah, I told you that. He made mud. Okay, then, you're going to have to come with us. You've you, you got to come with us. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, on the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him, how he had received his sight. And now the five-point sermon is going to become a three-point sermon. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, I washed and now I see. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. This man that healed you, he cannot be from God. He does not have the power of God in him. Anybody that had the power of God in them would realize that you don't do that kind of stuff on the Sabbath day. He can't have the sanction of the Father. He's a sinful man. He does not keep the Sabbath. Let's go back into first century Jewish culture for just a second. First century Jewish culture, you would work six days, and then you would come sundown Friday night all the way through Saturday till sundown Saturday night, and you did not work. That was the Sabbath. No one worked on the Sabbath. Did you see what group that they brought this man to, this formerly blind man? They brought him to the Pharisees. 
You know what the word Pharisee means? The word Pharisee means set apart one. The one who's been set apart. I think these men grew up longing to have their hearts fully devoted to God. I think that these Pharisees, I think they loved God. I, 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 think, I really do think that they loved God. And I think growing up, all they wanted was to, to, they wanted every part of their spiritual life to be presented to God, to be used by God, to, to show that they were devoted to God. I think where it all gets a little crazy is that they longed so much to have their heart set apart to God that they didn't want to break a command and they didn't even want to break a hint of a command. So they took the command, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy and don't do any work. Okay, but what is work? We got to define it. So they had a thing called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah had 39 separate categories to define what work was. Here's a sampling of the 39, not all of them. Plowing, planting, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, dyeing wool. You look at that and you go, okay, so what exactly, which one of those exactly did Jesus break? And you're plowing, planting, harvesting, threshing, kneading. So when he knelt down and he kneaded with his fingers that dust into mud, he, he broke the Sabbath. There it is. He kneaded. He's in trouble. He can't be from God because if he was from God, he wouldn't do that on the Sabbath day. Does that seem a little goofy to you? Does this seem a little short-sighted to you that this guy... This group of people can't see what's like right in front of them. Here's a learning moment for us. There may be a gut reaction to look at a story like this and to think, man, what a bunch of idiots. I mean, come on, Pharisees. You, you got to be better than that. I would caution you not to do that. As you read the Bible or hear it taught, there will be occasions where you will hear something and you'll think to yourself, man, what a bunch of doofuses. And there's a tendency to kind of place ourselves over the characters in the Bible and think to ourselves, I would never do what they did. Like, I'm smarter than that. I know better than to do something like that. I would be able to see through that. I think instead of doing that, it's healthier for us to see ourselves as one of them. It's healthier for us to embed ourselves into the stories that we see, especially the ones where they're not getting it right. I think it's really healthy for us to embed ourselves in that kind of story and to ask the question, where do I do that? Rather than copping an attitude of, of, of superiority and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm above that. No, let's, it's better to place yourself among them and to say, where do I do that? And the that that we're talking about is when our view of God causes us to miss the heart of God. That's what's going on here. Their view of God has caused them to miss the heart of God. It takes an incredible amount of insight and a little, uh, more than a little humility to be able to recognize where the view of God, our view of God, is causing us to miss the heart of God. It's that person that decides, I'm going to really be the spiritual leader of my home. I'm going to take that seriously. And I commend you for that. Man, I commend you for that. But, but I've seen that happen before where they, they decide they're going to lead their 
their family, and they're going to be the spiritual leader of the home, and then they're not good to their wife at all. And that's having a view of God that misses the heart of God. It's the person who says, I'm going to really study the Bible. I'm going to get really good at it. I'm going to know it backward and forward. I'm going to know the theology of it. I'm really going to get into theology. And then as they get into it, they start to feel superior to everybody else, and it comes across in their attitude. And their view of God has now caused them to miss the heart of God. Don't do that. It takes humility to place yourself in the, in the shoes of these Pharisees. Brett, were all of these Pharisees close-hearted and close-minded, and were they all, you know, turned off to faith? No. Some of them look at this guy and they say, he, you know, he healed him. Some of them said, you know, the guy cannot be from God because he healed on the Sabbath day. But there's another group that said, well, hold on a minute. He did heal him, all right? So we got to stop and think about that. I mean, we can't just dismiss that. He healed the guy. If he's not from God, how did he do that? Verse 16, the second part. But the others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And now you've, got, now you've got this guy who recently got his sight, and he's being detained. Can you imagine? He wants to go celebrate. He wants to go look at things, right? Imagine you, your whole life you haven't been able to see anything, and now you get your sight, and these guys are messing around with you. You just want to go look at stuff. Like you want to go look at a tree. I want to go look at the pond. Look at, you know, watch people. Watch them walk. Can you imagine? And he's watching these two groups of people argue. He is from God. He's not from God. He can't be from God. He's got to be from God. And he's kind of watching the volleys go back and forth, kind of like he's at a tennis match, right? What do you say? What do you say? He's, he's just taking, and this is all centering around him. And they finally look at him and say, it's your eyes he opened. What do you have to say about it? Verse 17, then they turned to, to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. And then they spin up this conspiracy because that's not good enough. They got to they twist this somehow because this is not going the way they want this to go. And they say, we're not even sure you were born blind. Witness dismissed, and they call this guy's parents in. Now, these poor parents, they got three questions for the parents. Is this your son? Was he born blind? How can he see now? How did this happen? To which they reply, okay, two of the three we can give you, all right? Um, verse 20, we, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. They're afraid. They're afraid, and they should be. And the reason they should be afraid, you find out in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. You need to understand, the synagogue is the center of Jewish religious and social life. To be put out of the synagogue is to basically be excommunicated. You had no friends, no one talked to you, no one acknowledged you. You were on your own. Your life incredibly changed if you were not allowed to go to synagogue. And they were scared to death to tell the truth in this case because they were afraid that they were going to lose all their friends and they were going to lose their social network. 
get the parents out of here and get that blind guy back in here. Well, he's not blind anymore, but whoever he is, get him in here. Round two, verse 24. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. (laughs) He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Does that sound familiar to you? I once was lost, but now I see. He would say, I started this morning by sitting on a curb with my hand out, like I've done every morning of my life. Every morning's been the same. It's humiliating. I want to be able to do what everybody else does, but I can't. I have to sit on the curb, and I have to hold out my hands and pray that somebody takes pity on me and gives me a little something to help me. And this man comes along and changes everything, and now I can see you. You understand? I couldn't see this morning, and now I can see you. Whether or not this guy's a sinner, I have no idea, but I know this. I was blind, but now I see. And they say, okay, let's try this again. Verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And now this starts to get a little chippy, all right? Now you you see some attitude. He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? Oh, that's the wrong thing to say. He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to do that? You want to be a disciple too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now watch the response to that. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't even know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then listen to this arrogance. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. To say the least, it has been a day for this guy, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? In that culture, in that day, bad things didn't happen to good people. Bad things happened to people who deserved it. It was a theological belief. If something bad happened to you, you had it coming. What did they say? You were were steeped in sin at birth. Sin was all over you the moment, moment you came out. Something's going on with you and God. You can't just, you can't assume that you haven't done anything if you were born blind. Somebody's at fault somewhere, and then they throw him out. What's going on here is the type of unbelief that says, I don't care what you say to me, I don't care what evidence you produce, I don't care how compelling it is, I will not believe. And the reason that that type of unbelief exists is because belief is consequential. If these Pharisees say, no, you're right, 
Um, we've never heard of anybody being born blind. We've never seen this, so obviously he is from God. And apparently God the Father is with this guy, and, and he has the power of God in his life. And so um, we, we, we're going to repent of our view of religion, and we're going to throw in with Jesus, and we're going to follow him. Belief is consequential. Acknowledging the power of Jesus would have made a demand on these guys' lives they were not willing to make. They would have had to have admit that they were wrong and they would, it would have required them to relinquish all the power and all the control that they'd worked their whole life to get. They weren't going to do that. This is sometimes the case with disbelief. Sometimes when you run across somebody who says, I don't believe in God, not, not just that I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in a God of any kind. It's not always because that person did the hard work and investigated and, and studied and came away and said, you know, after studying it all and after examining all the evidence, I just don't believe there's a God. Sometimes people do that, and I have respect for that. But sometimes people just say, I'm not even looking at evidence, I just don't believe. I don't care what you say, I'm just not going to believe. Often it's the person saying, nobody is going to tell me what to do. If I believe in a God, then now I've got to do what that God tells me to do, and I'm just not going to do that. Some people know that belief is consequential. And if I come to faith, I, I just can't, I'm not my master anymore. I'm not the boss of me anymore. Aldous Huxley was an atheist. He wrote a book called Brave New World. You may have had to read that when you were a kid. He also wrote a book called Ends and Means, in, in which he starts to describe and, and explain some of his atheism. And in that book, Ends and Means, he says this, the philosopher who finds no meaning or no God in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. Isn't that deep? In other words, he's not just trying to, uh, you know, it's, it's about philosophical questions. You know, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. It's not just about philosophy. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. He goes on. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness, meaning no God, was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. In other words, we want to do what we want to do, and no church and no body and no man on a platform is ever going to tell us what to do. And if you really think about it, you know, the big pushback on faith, and I get it, the big pushback on church and preachers and is, well, he wants to control me. I want you to think about the way I talk to you on Sunday morning. Do I sound like a man that's trying to control you? I'm not trying to control you. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm trying to help you understand where the problems in your life come from and how to avoid those. And that there's a father who wants to walk with you through all of that and inform the decisions that we make. For Aldous Huxley, that's where his atheism came from. Nobody, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. There's also a guy named Thomas Nagel. I've been talking in this series about a, a man named Timothy Keller in a book he wrote called Encounters with Jesus. And in that book, he quotes this Thomas Nagel. Thomas Nagel is a, um, is a Harvard PhD, and he is the chairman of the 
philosophy department at New York University, and here's what he said about his atheism. I want atheism to be true and made, une and, and made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I'm not objective is what he's saying. I don't want God to exist. People are not object, uh, objective because belief is consequential. If God is creator and if he designed and engineered the universe, if Jesus came as the son of God to die for us, and if God validated those claims by bringing him back to life, then to believe in Jesus means that I must bend my will to his, and the question really is, do I trust him? Do I trust him? Believing that Jesus was actually from God and had healed this guy meant that the Pharisees were going to have to learn a whole new way of doing things. Belief is consequential, and we often refuse to come to faith because we don't want anybody telling us what to do. Tim Keller talks about the three components of, 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 of the influences of faith. Intellectual, relational, and personal. Intellectual, you know, is the Bible reliable? Is it really something that I can trust? Can I really believe that that Jesus died on a cross and then was raised from the dead. Can I really believe that? I mean, intellectually, can I get there? Can I have my questions answered? Then there's relational. This guy's a, an atheist, but he works with some guys. He works with a guy in, in his, the guy works for him. And, you know, he doesn't want to like the guy, but to be honest, this guy just for three years, he's been watching him and the guy just does everything right. He's good to the people around him. He shows up for work every day. He works hard. He's, he's, he's uh, you know, he, he doesn't cause trouble. He, he does extra work for the boss. He, he's generous to, the, to his co-workers. He catches them on break sometimes. You know, he'll sit next to somebody and counsel with them or listen to them as they're crying about whatever's going on in their life. He just, he's just, I don't want to like this guy, but he's just a really likable guy. And now he's starting to, I, I don't want to believe in God, but if I'm watching that guy, I got to start thinking to myself, maybe, maybe there's a God. And then personal. I will submit my life to Christ. See, some play an intellectual game, and what they do is they'll they got three questions, and then you answer those three questions, and now I got six questions, and then you answer those six questions, now I got three more questions, and after that, three more questions that basically have looped back to the first three questions. And they play this intellectual game, and they never get out of the intellectual box because they don't want to move down the list because they know belief is consequential. If you move me out of that top section, now I'm going to have to get relational, and it's going to get personal, and belief is consequential, and I don't want to do that. Trusting is hard because we've been burned in relationships, and we say to ourselves, I'm never getting burned again. For these Pharisees, the evidence was just too disruptive and too inconvenient. So they take the evidence and they throw it out and they throw the blind man out. Story over, right? Wrong. Jesus tracks this guy down. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. In other words, you're looking at him. 
Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him, which basically means he put his face in the dust, which is where this whole story started with Jesus working in the dust. He could have been angry. He could have looked at Jesus and said, why? Why did you make me go through my whole life begging on a street corner? Why did you do that to my parents? Why did I have to be born this way? I didn't do anything wrong. My parents didn't do anything wrong. Jesus explained that to me, but that's not, he's not full of questions. He just fell to his face and he worshiped. And Jesus said, this happened that the works of God might be revealed. The works of God are on display and that is something for us to cling to when we go through something that is really difficult and it tempts us to disbelief. It is human nature to ask why, but I would encourage you as you move through things to be open to be able to pray, God, I'm inviting you to demonstrate who you are in and through and around whatever it is that I'm going through. And it's hard, and I don't like it, and to be totally honest, God, I want to be a little mad at you, but I'm trying to get through all that. I'm trying to push through that. I want your works to be on display because I want you to get the glory in whatever happens in my world. That's where hope and trust is found. And I would just simply say, may the works of God be on display in your life, in and around and through your life this week. Let's pray to that end. Would you bow with me? Father, some have walked in here this morning and their world is upside down and they don't know what in the world's going to happen next. And to be totally honest, they're afraid and they're a little mad. And the last thing they want to hear is a preacher get up on a stage and talk about how you're going to move and work in, around, and through it. Father, I pray that you would work on their heart this morning. And that you would open them up and that you would draw them to you and that they would maybe be able to turn a corner where they can say, okay, God, I'm yours, I belong to you, and if you can get glory out of this, you go right ahead and do it. Father, it takes big faith to do that. It takes humility stuff that does not come in abundance for us. We need your help. So Father, for every hardship and heartache in this room this morning, I pray over it, that you would, your works and your will and your grace and your praise would be manifest through whatever's going on in our life so that at the end of the day, you are magnified. Because Father, we love you and we are yours. Father, we worship you in these moments. We thank you for what you do for us every single day. And it is in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.